The Old Testament reading for today is Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. The New Testament reading is Luke 2, 1 through 21. Luke 2, 1 through 21, and this will be our sermon text. First, Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. This was a prophecy written long before the birth of Christ. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts We'll do this. Let us go now to Luke 2 and consider verses 1 through 21, where we are told of the beginning of the fulfillment of these prophecies made so long ago. Luke 2 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn." And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, 
And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Luke chapters 1 and 2 focus on a very unique and interesting period in the history of redemption. And by the way, when I use the phrase history of redemption, which I do often, I am referring to the things that God has done within the history of the world that are directly connected to the salvation He has accomplished for His people through Jesus Christ. Many things have happened in the history of the world. In fact, only a very small percentage of the things that have happened in the history of the world are recorded for us in history books. Have you ever thought about that? Think about about how many things have happened in your life individually that will never be recorded in any history book and multiply that by millions and even billions, you see. There's a very small percentage of things that happen in the world that are recorded for us in the history books. But when we speak of the history of redemption, we are considering only those events which have a direct relation to the accomplishment of our redemption by Jesus Christ. This is the history that is recorded for us in the Bible. Really, it begins with Genesis 3.15. Before that, we find an account of the general history of the creation of the heavens and earth, of the covenant that God made with mankind through Adam, and of mankind's fall into sin through Adam. All of that is generic human history. All of that is the background to the so-called history of redemption, of which we so often speak. In Genesis 3.15, we find the promise concerning the Messiah, the Redeemer of God's elect. In Genesis 12, everything comes to focus on Abraham and his descendants. And in the book of Exodus, everything comes to focus on the nation of Israel, which descended from Abraham. There were lots of things happening in the world in the days of Abraham and in the days of Old Covenant Israel. World histories are concerned with those things, but the Bible is concerned to tell us about the history of redemption, that is to say, of how the Messiah was brought into the world as a descendant of Adam, Abraham, and King David in fulfillment of the promises that were entrusted to Israel long before Here is what I mean when I say that Luke chapters 1 and 2 focus on a very unique and interesting period of time in the history of redemption. For thousands of years prior to the events recorded for us in Luke 1 and 2, the people of God looked forward to the arrival of the Messiah who had been promised to them. Luke will begin to tell us about the self-conscious and public ministry of the Messiah in Luke chapter 3 of his gospel. But in Luke chapters 1 and 2, He gives us some insight into the 30-year period of time that passed between the first announcement concerning the imminent birth of Jesus the Messiah and the beginning of His public ministry. Are you following me here? Uh, There was about 30 years that passed between the events recorded for us in Luke chapters 1 and 2, uh, at least the first part of Luke chapter 2, 
and the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. I want you to try to wrap your head around that for a moment. Thirty years passed between the events that are recorded for us here and the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. That's a pretty long period of time. And Luke devotes only two chapters to this 30-year period of time. He devotes 22 chapters to the three or so years of Jesus' public ministry and the account of His death, burial, and resurrection. But I suppose one might ask the question, why give any attention to this period of time at all? Uh, In other words, why don't we just get on with it and begin to consider the things that Jesus said and did? Well, I think you would agree with me that these early chapters are important. One, they explain where Jesus came from. And by that I do not only mean where He was born and raised and who His parents were. No, given the miraculous nature of His conception, Luke makes it clear that Jesus Christ was born from above. So, Luke chapters 1 and 2 really drive that point home. Where is Jesus from? Well, He grew up in Nazareth. Yes, He was born in a little town of Bethlehem. He was born of Mary. But more than that, He is from above. Uh, There was a miraculous conception that we must consider. He is born from above. He is the eternal Son of God come in the flesh. Two, these early chapters of Luke's Gospel establish quite convincingly that Jesus of Nazareth was born into this world in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. It it might feel, I will admit, like I am beating a dead horse here. And, And by the way, That's an awful expression, Uh, but it is effective, right? But the truth is, Luke is the one who is concerned to drive this point home. If you're you're going to complain about uh, the repetitiveness of these last few sermons, wherein we are constantly drawing attention to the fact that Jesus was born into this world in fulfillment of promises, prophecies, types, and shadows previously given, take up your complaint with Luke, I dare you, right? He wants us to know that this Jesus was not born into the world randomly and like any other man or woman is born into this world, but in fulfillment to prophecies previously given. It is such a pervasive theme in Luke's gospel from beginning to end, but especially here in the early chapters. The things that happened when Jesus was born demonstrate convincingly that Jesus was no ordinary man but was born from above, that He was the Messiah promised from long ago. And I think the third important thing that is accomplished in the first two chapters of Luke is that we are given a glimpse into things that were said about Jesus before He ever uttered a word about Himself. There's something powerful about that. Luke wants us to be certain that Jesus is the Messiah, And before Jesus Himself ever utters a word about Himself, we hear what others have to say about Him. I think this is a very significant observation. Long before Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, and long before John the Baptist pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, others, angels, prophets and prophetesses, and the Holy Scriptures themselves testify concerning Him. These things were said before Jesus was born when He was an infant, And when he was a small boy, before his messianic self-awareness was fully developed. My point is this. It is one thing for Jesus to claim to be the Messiah. And indeed his claims, once he did make them, were backed up with signs and wonders. The greatest of them being the resurrection from the dead. But it is another thing for others, angels, men, and the scriptures, to testify concerning him. Especially when we consider that they did so before he was able to utter a word 
concerning himself. So then, who has testified that Jesus is the Messiah? So far, we have heard from the angel Gabriel. We have heard from Elizabeth, Mary, and Zechariah. And remember, these did not speak on their own authority, but were moved along by God to utter what they said. And more than this, when they testified concerning the identity of Jesus, they did so using the very words of inspired Scripture. So then, these witnesses, the angelic, human, and scriptural witnesses, are presented to us by Luke so that we might have certainty that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah and that we do indeed have salvation in Him. Today we will consider Luke 2, 1 through 21. Yet again, we will find that God testified concerning Jesus as the Messiah, and He did it through His elect angels, through humble men, and through the Holy Scriptures. First, let us consider verses 1 through 7. Here, we find an account of the birth of Jesus, and we will see that it was accomplished in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. Yes, that point is being made yet again, and I will make it unashamedly in the future more. It's such a very important point. Christ was born into this world in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. He is the Messiah the long-awaited Messiah. In verses 1 through 3, we read, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And then Luke tells us this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. I think it is important to notice the big names that are mentioned in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Caesar Augustus, he was the emperor of Rome at the time, Quirinius is also mentioned. He was the governor of Syria. These are big names. These are the kinds of names that appear, not only in the Bible, but in the general history books of the nations. These are the kind of names that you read about at school, the kind that are archived in famous libraries. Caesar Augustus was so powerful that he could command all the world to be registered, and men obeyed him. They traveled sometimes great distances to their hometown to be Registered. That's how powerful Caesar Augustus was. Why did Luke mention these big names? And by the way, he will do it again in 3.1 of his gospel. Well, I suppose on the most basic level, he mentions their names and these decrees so that we might know when these things happened. After all, these men were so significant that time was measured by their reigns in the third year of such and such a king. That's how um, time was measured in those days. But I think there is something else going on here. There is a contrast being made between these incredibly rich and powerful political figures, men who occupy center stage in the history books of the world, and the poor, humble, meek, and mild figures who take center stage in the history of redemption, the history that is told in the Bible concerning the accomplishment of our eternal redemption and the establishment of an eternal kingdom. I want you to notice this contrast. I think Luke mentions Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, the governor of Syria, so that we might contrast these powerful figures, these well-known figures, these figures that appear in the history books of the world, with the very weak and insignificant figures that will take center stage in the history of Redemption, Joseph, Mary, and ultimately the babe that was laying in a manger are the ones who take center stage. To the world, this seems upside down and backward, 
But this is how the Lord works. He works through the humble, the lowly, the meek, and the mild. This theme of the inversion or reversal of the ways of the world and the workings of of God according to His wisdom was beautifully introduced to us in the Song of Mary when she rejoiced in God her Savior, saying, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. That is Luke 1, 51-53. This bringing down of the mighty would have ultimate fulfillment in the casting down, binding, and defeat of Satan. But it, appears to, but it applies to Caesar, Augustus, and Quirinius too. These powerful figures who are noticed by the world are nothing in God's plan as it pertains to the accomplishment of our redemption, as it pertains to eternity. They are brought low in Christ. Um, Indeed, it applies to all who are proud in their hearts, who rebel against the Lord and His anointed. But who will the Lord exalt? Who will the Lord exalt? The humble and lowly. That is to say, all who magnify the Lord and rejoice in the salvation He has worked for us through Jesus the Messiah. Who will the Lord exalt? Well, first and foremost, He will exalt Jesus the Christ, this babe that was laying in a manger, who found no place in this world when He was born into this world. Jesus will be exalted. He will be exalted far above Caesar. He will be exalted far above Quirinius. He will be exalted to the very right hand of God in heaven where He will be enthroned forever and ever. I want you to notice this theme, brothers and sisters, the the prideful, the haughty, the rebellious ones, the rich and the powerful in this world, they will be brought low, but Christ will be exalted, and so too will all who are united to Him by faith be exalted. In verses 4-5 through we read, And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Notice this. God revealed through the prophet Micah, who ministered to God's people about 700 years before Jesus was born, that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Did you hear me? This was prophesied long before through Micah the prophet. The Christ, when He was brought into this world, would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the, mighty, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. This prophecy is ultimately about the coming Messiah. Where would this Messiah be born? In Bethlehem. And where, was, where would his fame spread to? Even to the very ends of the earth, according to the decree of God. When Joseph and Mary were forced to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, it must have seemed like a major inconvenience to them. 
It, it must have seemed even dangerous to them, for Mary was pregnant even to the point of being ready to give birth. And there were many unknowns. Just put yourself in their position, brothers and sisters. Uh, travel back then was much more difficult than it is today. They would have had to have traveled by foot, most likely, a very long distance. Perhaps a beast of burden would have been used uh, to, to transport Mary. But imagine making that journey, uh, being nine months pregnant. Imagine making that journey as a husband, being very much concerned for your betrothed, who is nine months pregnant. To them, it must have seemed like a major inconvenience. Perhaps they were tempted to murmur under their breaths against Caesar Augustus, who would demand that all the world be registered in this way. But notice how God used this to accomplish His purposes. Brothers and sisters, when we read of Caesar Augustus and of his decree that all the world should be registered, and when we consider that this decree did not thwart God's plans, but rather was used by God to advance and accomplish His plan of redemption, we must remember that the same has been true throughout the history of the world and is true even to this present day. The world thinks that it is those who have their names written in the history books of the nations that shape the course of history. That is how the world thinks. Who shapes the course of history? Who determines how things go in this world? Well, it is the rich and it is the powerful. It is those with political power who shape the course of human history, the scriptures say otherwise. It is God who determines all things. It is God who accomplishes His purposes. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will, Proverbs 21.1 so famously says. We must remember this, brothers and sisters, even in our present day as we consider the powerful figures that rule over us, who govern us. Are they the ones in control ultimately? No, it is the Lord who is in control. And God's people should take great confidence and courage from this fact. In verses 6-7, through seven, we are told of the birth of Jesus. The ordeal of childbirth is described very briefly. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. The phrase, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, is straightforward and rather unimpressive on the surface. Every human who has ever lived, with the exception of Adam and Eve, was brought into the world in this way, through the process of childbirth. But those who know who Jesus is will marvel over this phrase, and who is Jesus? We know that He is the eternal Son of God. It is the person of the Son, or Word, the second person of the triune God, who took to Himself a human nature, body, and soul. We call this the Incarnation. And how did the Son of God become incarnate? Stated differently, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Answer with the help of our Catechism. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and born of her, yet without sin. So then, as strange as it sounds, it is right to say that Mary gave birth to God. It sounds strange to our ears, and it should sound strange, given our doctrine of God. 
But there is a sense in which it is true. She did not give birth to the divine nature. God is eternal. He has no beginning or end. Nor did she give birth to the Father or Spirit, for the Father and Spirit did not assume a human nature. But she did, in a sense, give birth to the person of the eternal Son, who willingly took to himself a true body and reasonable soul. He humbled himself, he, the Son, who has eternally proceeded from the Father, humbled Himself this way for us and for our salvation. If you do not know who Christ is, then you will not think much of the phrase, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. But if you know that the person of Christ is the person of the eternally begotten Son, then you will never cease to marvel over this little phrase. And consider this, when the Son of God assumed a human nature and was born into this world, the very world that was created through Him in the beginning, mind you, there was no room for Him. There was no room for Him. He was not born in a palace. He was not born to parents of wealth and renown. No, He was born to obscure parents and in an obscure place. And even there, in that obscure place, that small town of Bethlehem, there was no room for Him. He was born in a stall, and lain in a manger. He was born humble and lowly. Jesus, in His life and during His earthly ministry, would say, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. So this was characteristic of His entire life and ministry. He was humble and lowly. The world had no room for Him, as it were, given I think, spiritually speaking, it's, it's fallen condition. And this was the case even at His birth. There was no room for this Jesus, the Messiah, the eternal Son of God, who took on flesh. Who has believed what He has heard from us, Isaiah 53 says. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He, speaking of the Messiah, grew up before Him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. He, speaking of the Messiah, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, He was despised, and we esteemed Him not. This characterized the whole life and ministry of Jesus, even from the moment of His birth, He didn't have control over His birth, humanly speaking. But even His birth was characterized by lowliness and humility. He was born in a far-off town of Bethlehem in fulfillment of the Scriptures. He was born in an animal stall and laying in a manger. In verses 8-14, through we learn that though the rich and powerful of this world took no notice of the Messiah's birth, the hosts of heaven did. For the birth of Jesus was announced by angels. Look at verses 8 and 9. There we read, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Though the text does not say this, that it was the angel Gabriel, I think it is safe to assume that it was, given that He was the one who was sent to appear to Zechariah and Mary, as told to us in Luke chapter 1. The name of the angel is not given to us here. I think it is safe to assume that it is Gabriel. He seemed to be particularly tasked with announcing the arrival of the Messiah. 
The text says that the glory of the Lord shone around them. Angels are spirits. They are invisible and do not have form or matter. But as we have seen in Luke's gospel, they are able to appear to men. This angel manifested himself to the shepherds with the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord shone around them. Notice that the reaction of the shepherds is typical of those who have such encounters with angels. They were filled with great fear. Brothers and sisters, we would be wise to remember that angels exist. They were created by God in the beginning. Some rebelled against God, but the elect angels remained. They have kept their proper place and they have been confirmed in their holiness. They are God's servants and messengers. They minister to God's people always. And they are especially present with us when we worship. Angels exist. The holy angels serve God and His people. They are powerful beings, as you can tell. Though we are not to worship angels, and though we are not to pray to them or focus on them in such a way that we are distracted from God and Christ, we are to be mindful of the angels, and we ought to thank God for them. For the Lord does use them to minister to us, though we are often unaware of their ministry. The point that I want you to grasp is this. Though Caesar Augustus could care less about the birth of this child in the far-off and insignificant town of Bethlehem, the holy angels of heaven cared. They understood that this was where the real action was taking place on earth. This is where the real action was taking place. For here, in this manger laid the Messiah who would take away the sins of all who trusted in Him and earn for Himself an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. They were happy to announce the arrival of the Lord's Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. In verse 10 we read, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Angels, like Gabriel are sometimes used by the Lord to pour out God's judgment. But Gabriel was not sent to these shepherds for that purpose. He was sent, in this instance, to bring good news. It was news that was to produce great joy in their hearts. It was good news, not only for them, but for all the people. And I take that to mean for all of the Jews, and also for all of the Gentiles. That is to say, for all the nations of the earth. And what was the news? Well, it is found in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There is an awful lot of doctrine crammed into that one little statement from this angel. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The reference to David should link our minds back to the promises made by God to David concerning a son whose throne and kingdom will have no end. You may go and read of that covenant promise made to King David long before Jesus was born in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Notice also that the angel referred to Jesus as Savior. In the Old Testament, God is repeatedly called 
Savior. God is the Savior of His people. Consider, for example, Psalm 24, 5. It says, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. So God is our Savior. It is God who is the God of our salvation. Consider also Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So it is the Lord Yahweh who is the Savior of His people. Finally, consider Isaiah 45, 21. There we read, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declares it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. So God is our Savior. There is none other Excuse me, I lost my place for a moment. When Jesus is called Savior, it is clear that He is the one through whom the Lord would save His people from their sins. And He is able to save people from their sins because He is no mere man, but is Himself the Lord of glory. This is something that we must see. God is called the Savior of His people throughout the Old Testament, but here, this Jesus is called Savior. He is the one through whom God would accomplish the salvation, and He is able to save His people from their sins, because He is no mere man, but is Himself the Lord of glory. He is Himself the Lord God of Israel. In fact, He is called the Lord of glory in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 2.8 and James 2.1. Notice, lastly, that the angel refers to Jesus as Christ the Lord. He is the Lord, that is to say, He is the Lord God of Israel incarnate, and He is the Christ, which means Messiah or Anointed One. I think it is interesting that this is the first time that the word Christ appears in Luke's Gospel. This is the first time that the word Christ appears. He is called the Savior, the Christ, here at the time of His Birth. One question that Luke's gospel seems eager to answer is this, who is Jesus? Specifically, is He the Christ, the promised Messiah, the anointed one of God? He is called Christ for the first time in, here in 2.11 by the angel at the time of His birth. He will be called the Christ again in 2.26 by a man named Simeon when he is presented at the temple. That also is very significant at his birth. And when he is presented at the temple, he is called Christ. In 3.15, we are told that the people were wondering if John was the Christ. But John answered in the negative and clarified that he was preparing the way for the Messiah, the strap of whose sandals he was not worthy to untie, referring to Jesus. Interestingly, in 4.41, demons confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And Luke tells us that they knew He was the Christ. So even the demons, the fallen angels, knew that this Jesus was the promised Messiah. They testify concerning Him in a way. And then in 920, we come to the great confession of Peter. Jesus asked His disciples, But who do you say that I am? Do you hear the question that Luke is really concerned to answer in his gospel? Who is Jesus? And so in Luke 9.20, Jesus presses His own disciples with the question, 
Who, who do you say that I am? The people have all their opinions, but who do you, my disciples, say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. What a wonderful answer. What a succinct answer. A very confident and bold one. The Christ of God. So the question, is Jesus the Christ, seems to come up over and over again in Luke's Gospel, and it seems to ramp up towards the end of Luke's Gospel. The word Christ appears in Luke chapters 20 and 22, uh, there in those chapters once each, three times in Luke 23, and finally in Luke 24, Jesus appears to His disciples in His resurrection after He died, was buried, and raised on the third day. And He shows them from the Old Testament Scriptures that it was, and I quote, necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory. And He said to them again, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So from the beginning of Luke's Gospel to the very end, uh, this question is in view. Who is Jesus? Is He the Christ? Is He the Christ? And the answer consistently is, yes, He is the Christ. And many testify to this. The ultimate um, testimony concerning Him being the Messiah was His resurrection from the dead. And what did Jesus do with His disciples as He appeared to them during those 40 days after He was raised, except open the Scriptures to them and said, He said to them, See, all this suffering that I endured, you did not expect it. You expected the Christ to be a great and mighty conquering king, maybe a little bit like Caesar Augustus or Quirinius, the governor of Syria. But no. Can you see that the Old Testament Scriptures predicted that the Messiah would be humble and lowly, laying in a manger at the time of His birth? Can you see that the Christ was ordained by God to, to suffer affliction, even to the point of death, so that on the third day He might rise. Can you see it? Indeed, the disciples at that moment began to understand with the help of the Holy Spirit. They knew that this was true, and this was the message that they have proclaimed to us. We have it here in Luke's Gospel. Luke wants us to know for certain that Jesus of Nazareth, the one born to Mary in Bethlehem and laying in a manger, and the one who suffered on the cross, died, was buried, and rose on the third day, is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the one promised to Adam, Abraham, and David so long ago. In verse 12, the angel gives the shepherds a sign so that they might know that these things are true. He says this, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. What an interesting sign this is, don't you think? Here's a sign for you. I, I don't know, I'm, I'm on the fly right here. What is it? Um, I'll just use some of the other signs that appear in the Scriptures. This stick is going to be turned into a serpent, <laughs> right? And then made back into a stick again. I'm referring to Moses there, of course, and what he did before Pharaoh and the magicians, right? Uh, this, these jars filled with water are going to be made into wine. I mean, that's the kind of sign that we're used to in the Scriptures. It's a sign that... The things being said and claimed are true. Uh, miraculous signs. The sign that the angel gives, though, is not so miraculous. This will be a sign for you. You're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths <laughs> and, and lying in a manger. A baby wrapped in swaddling cloths was and is an ordinary thing. Uh, we did this with our children uh, when they were, were babies. The nurses did it in the hospital. It's very common to 
to tightly wrap babies. I don't know what they call that. You know, it's called something. McKenna would not stay wrapped from day one. She wanted to get out of that tight wrap. The others did fine with it. Uh, so this is not a miraculous thing. This is a very common thing. It's a beautiful thing, but it would not strike anyone as unusual or miraculous. A baby being laid in a manger is strange. But what were the chances that these shepherds would walk into the small town of Bethlehem and find this very scene? What were the chances of that? Uh, They were very small. When they walked into Bethlehem and found this scene, just as the angel had said, it was a sign to them that His word was true. But do not forget that signs do not only prove things, they also signify things. They contain meaning. Are you following me here? And what did this sign the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. What did it signify? Again, I say to you, it signified the lowliness and humility of the Messiah. It signified the fact that when the Messiah came into the world, there was no place for Him. It also kind of prepared the way for this idea that the Messiah would suffer in this world and through His suffering would accomplish our redemption. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him And bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I hope you are getting the message from Luke's narrative. The Christ was not born in Caesar's palace. (laughs) He was not born in Rome. He was not born in places of honor and prestige and comfort. He was born in a far-off place in Bethlehem, in a cattle stall, and laying in a manger. And this was a sign to the shepherds. They went into Bethlehem and they found it just as the angel said. But what was signified is the important thing. The Messiah is humble and lowly. The Messiah came to suffer and to die. And in this way, to earn our salvation. And through this suffering and through the victory He would earn, He would be raised not to Caesar's throne. Thanks be to God that the Messiah was not raised to Caesar's throne, nor to the earthly throne of David. Thanks be to God that Christ did not come to restore Old Covenant Israel to a place of prominence in the world. He came to do so much more. After having died, He was buried. And on the third day He was raised. And He ascended where? the very right hand of the God, our God and Father in heaven. There is where He sat down. And there He rules and reigns now and forever. In verses 13 and 14 we read, And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. You're probably beginning to notice that there was a lot of angelic activity in the days when Jesus Christ was born. At some point we should study angels in a very systematic way. For now, I will say, one, that angels exist. They were created by God in the beginning. Two, there are fallen, unholy angels and elect holy angels. Three, the holy angels are ministering spirits who constantly 
do God's will and work on behalf of God's people to accomplish God's purposes and salvation. Four, angels seem to be particularly active, and by active I mean they appear to people on earth, during those times when God is acting to accomplish redemption or to bring judgment. So, angels are always active, but they appear in the narrative of the history of redemption. They appear to God's people in those times where God is particularly active in either accomplishing redemption or judgment. Five, the angels were particularly interested in the arrival of Christ and were used by God to announce His arrival and to minister to Him in His life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Six, the holy angels will play an active role in the second coming of Christ, which will involve the salvation of God's elect and the judgment of the wicked. See 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Seven, the holy angels are not cute. (laughs) They are not. They are mighty warriors. They are powerful beings. They are the Lord's army. The holy angels are around us constantly, brothers and sisters. They are especially present with us when we assemble for worship. You may look to 1 Corinthians 11.10 and Hebrews 12.22 to see this. We should be mindful of them and we should give thanks to God for their ministry to us. From time to time in the history of redemption, the invisible spiritual realities of the heavenly realm were made visible to God's people on earth for their comfort and for their encouragement. Think of the episode recorded for us in 2 Kings 6, where Elisha prayed that his servant's eyes would be opened so that he would see the spiritual realities that surrounded them. Remember, Israel is being threatened by a foreign power, and the servant of Elisha is troubled. Elisha prays that his servant's eyes would be opened, so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw... And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This young man was in that moment given a glimpse of the spiritual reality that always surrounded him, but was invisible to him. He was given a glimpse of it so as to encourage his heart, to strengthen his faith. The angelic army of the Lord was there, but the servant of Elisha didn't know it. The Lord showed him so that he would not fear the threat of the Syrian army. Brothers and sisters, we should take note of this. We should be encouraged not only by the sovereignty of God over all things, knowing that He he is the one who is in control and not the kings of this earth. We should also be encouraged by the ministering spirits, the, 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 the Lord's army that is constantly at work around us and for our good. Something similar happens here in Luke 2. The Messiah has come into the world to stomp the head of the serpent, Satan, And he was accompanied by an army of holy angels. This reality was revealed to the shepherds in the field when Jesus was born. To show that the word of the other angel was true and to encourage their hearts. And indeed our hearts are encouraged through their testimony. This was a heavenly host or a heavenly army of holy angels. They were warriors and they were warriors who sang praises to God. Don't you love that? This is not only an army but this is an army who is also a that is also a choir. And they sang, giving glory to God. Glory to God in the highest and on peace and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. These angels praised God in heaven for they knew that He, through the Messiah that was born into the world and lain in a manger, would win the victory over the evil one so as to bring peace to His elect on earth. This is what is meant 
by the phrase, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Brothers and sisters, the birth of Jesus was accomplished according to the Old Testament Scriptures, and it was announced by the holy angels, for they are God's servants and messengers. Furthermore, the things that were accomplished by Jesus were of great interest to them. You may see 1 Peter 1.12 about this. For Christ would win the victory in the spiritual and heavenly battle that they themselves had been engaged in ever since the fall of the angels, which preceded the fall of man into sin. See Genesis 3.1. Are you tracking with me here? These holy angels, these elect angels, have been engaged in this spiritual battle ever since the angels fell from their proper place. And then the evil one ends up in the garden bringing temptation to the woman and to the man. These heavenly beings, these holy and elect angels, have been engaged in this spiritual battle ever since the fall of the angels and their rebellion against God. They are very much eager to see the arrival of the son of Adam who would stomp the head of their foe, Satan, and bring final victory on behalf of God and all His elect. Let us now briefly consider the third and final point of the sermon. The birth of Jesus was celebrated by humble men and women. And I will simply read verses 15 through 21 and make only a few brief observations. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Consider a few things. One, verses 15 through 17 simply describe what the shepherds did. The angels went away from them into heaven, and the shepherds went to Bethlehem, and they found what the angels, or the angels said that they would find, the baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, and they reported what was said to them by the angel and the heavenly hosts. Two, Verses 18 through 20 describe the response to their word. Verse 18, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. To wonder is to be astonished. It is to be amazed. A good word might be, they marveled. This word appears often in Luke's gospel. And I want you to see that Luke is inviting us to marvel over these things as well. When the text tells us that they wondered or they marveled over what had been reported to them, we are being invited by Luke to do the same, to wonder, to marvel over what the Lord had done. In verse 19, we are told that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So, Mary wondered too, but it should be clear that these things were very precious to her, given that this Messiah was her own son, She treasured these things. She did more than wonder. She treasured these things. She held on to these things tightly in her mind, and she pondered them in her heart. Brothers and sisters, Luke is inviting us to not only marvel over these things, but to treasure and ponder them, just as Mary did. We are to treasure them, and we are to think about them deeply. In verse 20 we read, "...and their shepherds returned." glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Brothers and sisters, 
Not only is Luke inviting us to marvel, treasure, and ponder these things, but to glorify and praise God for all that He has done for us through Christ Jesus. We are invited to do what these shepherds did. We are invited to glorify and give praise to the God of heaven for this Messiah that He has sent. And do not forget this. It was not Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, nor Quirinius, the governor of Syria, but poor, humble shepherds tending to sheep in the fields surrounding Bethlehem, along with humble Joseph and Mary, who rejoiced and gave glory to God. Brothers and sisters, Luke is inviting us to identify with Jesus in His humility, to disregard the pride and pleasures of this world, and to join with the humble, lowly, meek, and mild of this world, confessing that Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger, is Christ the Lord, our Savior and our God. In verse 21 we read, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. In other words, Christ lived in perfect obedience to the revealed will of God, even from birth through the faithfulness of his parents, Joseph and Mary. He was circumcised on the eighth day in obedience to the law of Moses, because he was born under the old Mosaic covenant. He was named Jesus, which means The Lord delivers, or the Lord saves, in obedience to the word of the Lord delivered by the angel before. Christ lived a life of perfect obedience to God, even from His birth, for in this way He accomplished our salvation, through active obedience to the law of God and to the word of God, and through passive obedience. That is to say, He suffered on behalf of all those whom the Father had given to Him in eternity. See John 17. Brothers and sisters, by way of conclusion, let us remember that Luke aims to move us to greater certainty that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He presents us with witnesses who testify concerning Him. The Old Testament Scriptures, the holy angels, humble men and women, these all testified to Him that He is the Messiah. May we join with these to testify to others that Jesus was and is the Messiah who emerged from Israel and fulfillment to promises previously made, and that salvation is available to all who will call upon Him. Salvation is available to all who have faith in Him. May we give glory to God. May we bless the Lord. And may we be blessed to see many others bless His name too alongside of us. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in Heaven, may we marvel, may we ponder, May we cherish these truths that are told to us in Luke's gospel. We thank you for the salvation that you have worked for us through Christ the Lord. The way that you have worked our salvation, the way that you have accomplished it, is marvelous to consider. We are grateful. Father, we thank you that though we deserve death because of sin, though we deserve to suffer, you have sent a Savior who suffered and died for us and in our place so that we might be reconciled to you. May we be found in him now and always. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.